Thanks, Jeff. Great to see you here at the EU public meeting. Uh, if I haven't met you before, my name's Rowan Kemp. Uh, it's my privilege to lead the staff team that works alongside the EU here at Sydney Uni. And uh, the EU very kindly have asked me to uh, lead in some reflections on this book about the Lord Jesus Christ. This book written by Luke, as we heard before, written by Luke, the physician, about 60, 70 AD. And so in about half the EU public meetings this year, we'll be looking at this book of Luke. We'll do it in some blocks. So the first five weeks, we'll sort of look at the book of Luke. Then some other speakers will come in and talk about some different books of the Bible just to intersperse it. But we'll keep coming back to this particular book of the year for the EU this year. So I'm really glad that you can come and join with us. Now, uh, it will be really useful, though, if you're going to come along to EU public meetings, if you could bring a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you a Bible. You can come along to afternoon tea straight after this meeting, uh, come to the information table. We'd love to try to get you a Bible. Though these days, you, you probably don't even need to uh, buy a sort of a hard copy one. You can just get it on your phone, right? So if you don't have a Bible app, maybe you should just download a Bible app so you can access God's Word wherever you go. Why would you want to do that? Because if you believe what's said in the New Testament, this is your weapon. The Bible is your weapon because the New Testament says the Word of God is the sword of the Spirit. So with this, you are not so much armed and dangerous, but maybe you are illumined and dangerous. You actually understand God's revelation to humanity in the this book, words of this particular book. What a crazy thing if you call yourself a follower of Jesus to come to an institution which is trying to educate you if you don't have this with you. Because surely in all the things that you're going to learn and all the lectures and shoots and labs you go through while you're here at uni, whether it's just this year or over many years, you want to be integrating that with the revealed Word of God. So my suggestion is make sure you bring your Bible in some sort of digital or hard copy form with yourself to uni, and especially when you come to the EU, because this is the book that we're going to be looking at. So it would be great if you could bring that along. Okay, so I've talked, uh, entitled today's reflection, Disposable Jesus. We live in a disposable age, that's not controversial. My parents tell me that the first colour TV they ever bought lasted 30 years. It was still functioning, okay, barely, but it was still functioning 30 years after they bought it. Uh, my family, we bought a TV a couple of years ago, it died after four. We chucked it out on the side of the road and, you know, it's gone, four years. The first laptop I ever bought lasted me 10 years. It was still functioning 10 years after I got it. The last laptop I bought died after four and a half. And the tax office told me, you, you're a winner. You're a winner because when the tax office depreciate laptops, they say you've got to depreciate it in three years because after three years, the thing's probably about to die. So I don't know if your laptop's three years old, but just take that as a word of friendly advice. Right. Now, we live in a disposable age, so much so that when you were a little tacker, like I'm talking little, and when you walked around, you know, pooing and weeing, my guess is that most of you, would you believe, your parents wrapped your precious bottom in a piece of cloth. And when you pooed and weed, rather than just doing what we would do now, which is, you know, wrap a bit of plastic around the bum and just, you know, tie it up at remote and then chuck it in landfill... They actually wrapped it in cloth and when you pooed and weed, they washed it out and reused it on your precious behind. That's right. We've gone, no, that's gross. We're, we're into disposable. Right? That's our age. And most people, it seems to me, 
treat Jesus in a disposable way, like this disposable cup. When I look around the university, when I look around our society, don't you reckon that's how most people treat Jesus? He's an optional extra. He's at the periphery of most people's existence, if he's anywhere. He is truly a disposable commodity. And so I wanted to start with this reflection that Jesus is, seems to be treated as disposable in our society and, and try to suggest to you that this is not what Jesus himself said. What Jesus himself said, which we're going to look at today, is he said, if, if you regard me as disposable, then you are deluded and in a very dangerous place. He said, if you treat me as disposable, then you are deluded and you are in a dangerous place. And so what we're going to do is we're going to jump into Luke chapter 20 and see where Jesus talks about this. Now, we're going to be looking at Luke's Gospel over the course of this year. Normally, I don't know if you go to a Christian church or something like that, if people say we're going to read this book of the Bible, you start at chapter 1, right, and you work your way through. That's very sensible, very wise. I don't know why I'm not doing that. That seems a very sensible plan. But I decided, as a bit of an experiment, and welcome, my guinea pigs, to jump in to Luke 20. Let's start here. Why start here? Because it addresses this very issue. This sort of assumption about Jesus, so common in our society, that he is disposable. I thought, why don't we deal with that week one of EU public meetings? Because if Jesus is right about this, that he's not disposable, then we need to listen to him. And we should probably keep coming to public meetings. We should probably get involved in a Bible study. We should probably get a Bible app and read it. So that's what we're going to do today. So I hope you've got a Bible. It'd be great if you could open up to Luke chapter 20 or maybe look on with a person next to you. That would be really excellent. Luke chapter 20 or just go to BibleGateway.com and look it up there on your phone. Luke chapter 20. Now, because we are jumping in at Luke chapter 20, I better give you a little bit of backstory. I mean, you don't normally pick up a a book and just jump into chapter 20. Um, Mind you, when I say chapter 20, if you're an engineer or a scientist, you're thinking, man, chapter 20, that must be like, you know, a million pages in. I've never read a book with 20 chapters. (laughs) Chapters in the Bible, chapters in the Bible are very short, right? You can, you can get all the way up to Luke chapter 20 in probably about an hour, right? It's a very short chapters. But what I need to just give you a bit of a picture of what has Luke covered up to this point. So, Jesus has been going about a public ministry for three years. And the three years he's been teaching and doing amazing things, which we'll look at next week, the three years he's been doing this has brought him into a lot of tension with the national leadership of the country he was part of, the nation of Israel. He was really at loggerheads with the national leadership. So much so, he was on this collision course with them. They wanted to take him down. Actually, that's not true. They wanted to take him out. They actually wanted this guy dead. They decided they wanted to dispose of Jesus. They were going to get rid of the guy. He was such a troublemaker. Now, I don't know if you know anything about Jesus as recorded in the New Testament, but if you don't know much about him, you might be going... Seriously? Like, isn't Jesus just some sort of religious teacher, some good guy floating two feet off the ground with sort of a faraway look in his eyes and 
just saying nice spiritual truths and who would possibly, you know, wouldn't hurt my... That's not the Jesus, that's the Jesus of your head, not the Jesus of history. When you read the accounts, you see Jesus was in massive conflict with the national leadership. Now, if that were you, if you, the powers that be in Australia wanted to take you out, my guess is you would get on a plane as quick as you could, probably wearing a funny moustache and a hat, right? But Jesus, you can read in chapter 9, Jesus decides, knowing that they want to take him out, he decides to head towards Canberra, or in his case, Jerusalem, to the capital city. He is determined to meet them face on. Now, Jesus arrives in Jerusalem at the end of chapter 19. So, where we're picking up this story, Jesus has just arrived in the capital city, Jerusalem. You're expecting there to be fireworks. And sure enough, you read the last few verses of chapter 19, you'll see the first thing that Jesus does when he gets to Jerusalem is he goes to the temple. The temple was the, uh, the centre of the power of the national leadership. He goes to the temple, right to the very heart, and what he does there is he walks in and in the outer courtyard, which was meant to be a place of prayer, he sees that the temple authorities have set it up as a foreign exchange market. Because people were coming from all these different nations to make sacrifices at this temple and so they needed to change their money so they could buy Jewish money, so they could buy the animals for the sacrifices. And the temple authorities said, oh, we'll just set it up here in the courtyard. This was meant to be a place actually where you could pray. The chief priests had made this decision because the temple was their sort of their area. Jesus walks in, sees the foreign exchange market and drives them all out. He forces all the money changers and all the people with all the animals, he forces them all out saying this is meant to be a house of prayer. Well, that, that, like, that's a really confrontational thing to do, isn't it, with the chief priests there who'd actually set up the system. And then you read at the end of chapter 19 what Jesus did was every day he went into the temple and he would teach the people. Well, whose job was it to teach the people? It was the teachers of the law, the scribes, and the elders of the people. That was their task to teach the people. Jesus comes and starts doing it. This guy is not pulling back from confrontation. He's coming in and said, basically, you guys and you guys, you're all out of a job. I'm here. And then you read at the end of chapter 19, that's why they want to kill him. So then chapter 20 and chapter 21 are this account of Jesus' interaction with this national leadership. And what the, this very first story that Luke records for us is what happens on one particular day, one particular interaction, where you get to see why Jesus thinks he can have this confrontation, who he thinks he is and what he's about. And so that's what we're going to look at. So if you've got your Bible there, let's have a quick look. Luke chapter 20. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple courts and proclaiming the good news... Now, just stop there for a moment... He's teaching the people and what? Proclaiming the good news. If you want to say one fundamental thing about what was Jesus on about, that's it. He came announcing good news. What was the good news? Why is it good? What's newsworthy about it? Is it good for me? Is it good for you? I'm not going to answer any of those questions today. That's next week. So you need to come back next week and say, what was this good news that got Jesus into so much trouble. Anyway, that's next week. (laughs) Proclaiming the good news, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, together with the elders, came up to him 
Tell us by what authority you are doing these things, they said. Who gave you this authority? Basically, what right do you have? You're a peasant from the back blocks of who knows where. You're here sort of acting like you've got our job, our... Who are you? Basically, Jesus, know your place, sit down and shut up. That's their attitude. Jesus replied, I will also ask you a question. Tell me, John's baptism, talking about John the Baptist, was it from heaven or of human origin? This is like um, Jesus' non-answer to their, to their question. By what authority? Jesus says, okay, well, you remember that guy who a couple of years ago out uh, at the River Jordan, you know, the, the guy that all the people said was a prophet and who had this sort of preaching, this sort of good news message, actually, and you can read about it in the early chapters of Luke's Gospel, actually. You can go away and read about it. You remember that guy, John the Baptist? Well, where did he come from? Was he from God or from just uh, some human guy? Where was his authority? Now, that's a clever question because that really puts the national leaders, you know, impales them on the twin horns of a dilemma. Because at that point, then they've got to say, well, and as you can read there, they go, right, well, if we say John the Baptist, he was from God, then Jesus will say to us, well, then why did you not believe him? Because we know from earlier in Luke's Gospel, they didn't. The national leadership did not regard John actually as a prophet. They didn't actually heed what he had to say. They'd rejected him. So they can't say he was from God. Then they say, oh, but if we say, well, he, he was just a, a, on his own authority, he was just a human being saying some stuff, he said, the people will have our heads because the people regarded him as a prophet. So they give the perfect political answer. We do not know. We were not briefed. We have no recollection of these events. They just, they're just a perfect political answer. And Jesus says, well, if you're not going to say, I'm not going to say but actually, do you notice what Jesus has done? He's actually exposed what really matters to them, isn't it? What's their big concern there? Well, their big concern is if we say that he's just a you know, human authority, then the people will not like us. They're worried about what the people think, not actually the message that was coming from God. These people are protecting their own authority. They're not interested in God's authority. Now, it's worth just pausing there for a moment before we move on. Because whilst, you know, I hope it's sort of interesting understanding more about this picture of Jesus we get from the New Testament and thinking about it, this is, as a Christian, we believe, or I believe, that this is God's word, not just a historical document, but God's word to us today. It's contemporary. So as we read this and seek to understand it with our minds, we've got to always think, well, what's God saying to us? What's God saying to us out of that? I actually think it challenges us even now already just with the question of, well, are we like that national leadership? Do we say to Jesus, by what authority? Sit down and shut up, Jesus. I don't want you calling the shots over my life. I Frankly, I like my life. A couple of years ago in O-Week, I met a guy, first year guy, I can't remember what he was studying now, but... He came up to me, I was sort of helping out with the EU a little bit, he came up and we got chatting, I said, oh, do you know much about Jesus? No, I don't know much about Jesus. Would you like to know about Jesus? He said, yes, actually, I'm quite interested to learn about Jesus. I'm at uni, I want to understand more stuff. I said, well, that's awesome, you came for an education, this is great. Um, so, let's, why don't we meet up each week, we'll have a coffee at Manning and we'll read part of 
the Gospels about Jesus. We, we could read part of Mark's Gospel. You know, each chapter takes about seven minutes to read. We'd say, we're going to do that and then just talk together. He said, that sounds great. Well, I'll do that. So we did. So we started having a coffee once a week in Manning and we'd read Mark's Gospel and that was going well for a couple of weeks and then, then one week he turned up super excited. He said, oh, I, I was reading that chapter you know, during the weekend. I just got really into it and I just read the whole lot. Oh, there's only 13 chapters. Like, it took him all 20 minutes, you know, instead of seven. But he said, I, it was fantastic. I just, it was so, it was just great. I was into it. I said, right, well, what did you think? Like, what do you, what do you think about it? He said, I reckon it's true. I, I, I just, just, has the ring of truth to it. I just, I think this is who Jesus is. Wow. I said, I thought, you, you want to become a Christian? Yeah, I guess so. I, I want to, yeah, be a Christian. So we prayed and we we're all very excited and we all we went our separate ways at the end and I was just thinking about it during the week. I was thinking, I was saying, I didn't really explain to him much about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. I didn't really, didn't really talk much about that at all. I, anyway, so when we, when we met up the next week, I just said, um, well, I just thought we should talk a little bit about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. I mean, what it means is, you know, that you're giving him the authority. You're saying you're Lord. You're the you're the ruler. Like you know, like it's on the t-shirt. Jesus is Lord, and therefore he's got the authority over your life, and you're going to choose to live your life his way. That's that's what you're on for, right? And he sort of looked at me across the table and just went, oh, "I'm not I'm not up for that." He said, "I like my life. I don't want to give it up." See, the question, above every question, the question, is what authority will you give this man, Jesus? Lots of other questions you'll answer in life, lots of other questions you'll have to think about, but really that is the question, surely, posed to us by Jesus. What authority will you ascribe to this person? Is he from God? Or is he just another crazy bloke? That's the big question. And these leaders had clearly made their decision. They had decided that Jesus was thoroughly disposable. That's what the religious leaders had decided. So what Jesus then does is Jesus turns away from this interaction from the leaders and he addresses the people who are there. I mean, the leaders are still there. They're hearing what's going on, as we'll find out in a moment. He addresses the people, because that's remember he was teaching the people, they interrupted him. And he tells them a story, what we call a parable, Jesus was a famous storyteller, told lots of parables. And parables, you know, they, they make usually just one or two sort of points, but, you know, make it in this by telling this story. Jesus tells this story. If you've got your Bible there, you might like to see where he starts telling the story in verse 9. Jesus went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard. Now, why am I stopping there? Well, it's because you and I just sort of go, oh yeah, okay, a man planted a vineyard, okay, that's you know where they have grapes and stuff, and just you want to keep going. But no, no, see, if you were a first century Jew, as these were, and you heard someone stand up in the temple, in the temple, a teacher, stand up and say, a man planted a vineyard, then you're going, oh, okay, I gotcha, yeah, no worries, I know the code, I'm with you, I'm on board the bus. And now you're going, oh, I don't know what's going on. What bus? <laughs> what bus? What code? What are you talking about? I really am I'm lost here. Okay, right? 
The reason is because the vineyard, the vineyard is a key Old Testament metaphor for the nation of Israel. Several times in the Old Testament, this key sort of picture of the nation of Israel is described as a vineyard. So when a man stands up and says, a man planted a vineyard, everyone knows, oh, I know what you're talking about. You're talking about our country. You're talking about our nation of Israel. I'll just show you this because one of the things we want to do at the EU public meeting is deepen our understanding of the Bible. So every time we read something like this, we've got to go, oh, there's important background here. We've got to go back and delve into that so we understand and can read the New Testament with more insight and get its richness, right? So flick with me back to Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 5 is probably one of the, um, the key places where this vineyard metaphor comes out. There's a few though, and if you're taking some notes, I'll give you some other references you can look up. But Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah writes here, I will sing, a, I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. So in those last couple of verses, he explains this metaphor, right? The vineyard is the nation of Israel, the people of Judah. Who's the owner who plants the vineyard? It's the one true living God, the Yahweh, the Lord. He plants this nation. He looks after it and he comes looking for good fruit. That is looking for obedience to the law that he'd given them back at Mount Sinai, but he doesn't see them living his way. Instead, they've gone after other gods and there's bloodshed and not righteousness. He says, what will I do? I will tear down the walls and I will let others come in and trample on my vineyard in judgment in order to lead them back to repentance. And that is what happened right, in the history of Israel. So what you have here in this particular use of the vineyard in Isaiah 5 is a prediction of judgment. A prediction of judgment. But the vineyard imagery is used in a few other places as well. I'll just give you some references. Um, Psalm 80 is another one. Psalm 80. What you'll see there is not a prediction of judgment. In Psalm 80, it's a plea for deliverance. A plea for deliverance. Because the Lord did tear down the walls, the nations did come in in judgment, and Psalm 80 is written from the perspective of, Lord, do good to your vineyard. Deliver us, Lord, as your vineyard. Or I'll give you another reference, Isaiah 27. Isaiah 27 is actually a promise of fruitfulness. Isaiah 27, where the Lord makes a promise, he says, yes, I will do good to my vineyard. I will answer your prayers. I will do good to my vineyard and you will be fruitful again. So here's some just some key uses of this vineyard sort of imagery. So when Jesus standing in the temple says, a man planted a vineyard, everyone goes, gotcha. You're talking about our nation. That's the first thing to note about this story. Second thing to note about this story, 
What Jesus does, using this metaphor of the vineyard, is he tells a spiritual history of the nation of Israel. In particular, he does sort of a spiritual analysis of the nation's leaders. That's what he does. A historical spiritual analysis of the nation's leaders. Now, you heard um, the Steph read out the parable for us, the story for us a little while ago. Just remind you, the owner says, harvest time, I want to get some of the fruit from the vineyard. I send my servants. Who are the servants? Stepping out of the parable into sort of the reality that Jesus is talking about, who are the servants? The servants are the prophets. The prophets that the one true living God sent to his nation to encourage them to produce good fruit. Who was, real life question for you here, who was the last prophet that the living God had sent? when Jesus is speaking this parable. Who's the last prophet? John the Baptist. Who was Jesus just talking about? John the Baptist. He's saying, the Lord God has always sent prophets, his servants. Who was the most recent one? The one these guys didn't believe. And what do the nation's leaders do when the prophets come? You can see in the parable what they do is they refuse to listen to the prophets. They refuse to listen to the servants. In fact, they injure them, send them back empty-handed. And Jesus is saying, this is what the nations, uh, Israel's leaders have always done. That is not a controversial statement. If you know your Old Testament, if you read through the Old Testament, that's just what Israel's leaders time and time again did, refused God's messengers. What Jesus is saying is, you guys are just like all the others. Which is a fairly confrontational thing to say. So what he's done here is a historical sort of analysis of Israel's leaders. An interesting reference you can chase up later, which I think is quite interesting, is that if you go back to Isaiah chapter 3, in Isaiah chapter 3 you can see actually this idea of the Lord announcing judgment on Israel's leaders because they've destroyed the vineyard. All those ideas come together in one particular part of Isaiah 3. You might like to look that up later. So this is the second thing there. It's a historical analysis of the spiritual life of Israel's leaders. The third thing is Jesus then in this story puts himself into the story. So you can see here, I'm going to pick the story up at verse 13. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. So instead of sending the servants, the prophets, now he sends a son. His beloved son. Who's the beloved son? Well, if you've read through Luke's Gospel, you know back in Luke chapter 3, when Jesus was baptised, when Jesus himself was baptised by John the Baptist, the heavens opened and there was a voice, a miraculous sort of voice that said, this is my beloved son, with him I'm well pleased. So this beloved son, this phrase is, was you know, used over Jesus and now Jesus telling this story says, and so the owner sends his beloved son, me himself. What does it mean to be a son? A son of the owner, a son of the living God. Well, that, that idea has got a lot of Old Testament freight too because in the Old Testament it was the king of Israel, the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, who is called the son of, the God, son of God. So if you go back to uh, Psalm 2 or 2 Samuel 7, you'll see that the king is called son of God. So Jesus is saying here, And so now the living God has sent me, I am the Messiah, the Christ, the King, whom he loves. He's identified himself. 
Now, remember, the leaders wanted to treat Jesus as disposable. Jesus is saying, no, 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 I'm actually the promised Christ. I'm absolutely essential, not disposable. Now, a bit of a visual sort of moment here for you. There are lots of disposable things in life, like paper cups, right? But there's other disposable things in your life, like your school textbooks, right? That history textbook you have from year 11. Probably not worth the paper it's printed on and your parents paid for. But anyway, that's your disposable... Like, that's a... You don't need that anymore. If you're still keeping that, please, you can probably just chuck it out. You're not going to need it. Believe me. Textbooks, they're sort of disposable. What about your CD collection? I mean, you don't need your CDs anymore. It's all on iTunes. You just get the MP3s. Like... Seriously, buying a c- CDs are completely irrelevant now, <laughs> aren't they? They're completely irrelevant. And so, your CD collection, though you might have sentimental value, maybe, but it's frankly a disposable item these days. What about that Nintendo DS sitting on the cupboard? <laughs> yeah, you know, seriously, so much better gaming available now. That is a completely disposable sort of item. There are many legitimately disposable things in your life. The question is, Is Jesus a disposable item? You might be treating him like one, but the question is, should he be in this category? Because there's many things in life that are not disposable, that are, if you like, essential. Things like, oh, here's one, oxygen. (laughs) That's essential. I mean, you could decide that you want, no, you're going to choose helium. (laughs) But you won't get very far, right? Because... Oxygen is frankly essential. You need it for life. It's not an optional extra. It's not disposable. You need oxygen. Or what about some other one? Food. Well, you can do without food for a little while, but if you do not eat for enough days, you die. You don't die if you don't play your DS. But, 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 there are real essentials. Food. Here's another one. Shelter. The great tragedy is that so many people, fellow human beings, don't have shelter and it's really essential for life. There are all sorts of things that are essential. So the question is, is Jesus in this category, is he actually essential or is he disposable? Where should he be? You see, the religious leaders are saying, well, he's disposable. We, in fact, are going to dispose of him. And Jesus says, no, if you do that, you are completely deluded. You are deluded because I am actually, as the Christ, the beloved Son, I am essential. As essential to having a full life as a human being as oxygen, as food, as shelter. Where do you place him? Where do you place him? Which category? Because Jesus says if you treat him as deluded, sorry, if you treat him as disposable, then you are deluded. Because he's actually essential. Now, Jesus doesn't stop there, and I'll wrap this up in the next three minutes. Jesus doesn't quite stop there. Because the parable keeps going. He says, what happens when the owner sends the son? The owner sends the son, and what do the tenants do? The tenants go, let's kill the son. Which is exactly what he already knows the religious national leadership are going to do. They'll kill Hitler. And so they do. They kill the son. 
And then what happens is that, the, the, he says in the story, the owner comes and destroys the tenants. Now, when Jesus says this, the crowd, you can read there in Luke 20, the crowd say, by no means, they say, may God forbid that, Jesus, you have just told a terrible story. This is awful. It cannot be like this. That the living true God who we worship would send his Messiah to ask his people and the leaders would kill him. This is horrendous. You can't tell this story. And Jesus, Luke says, Jesus looks at them and he says, then what is the meaning of what has been written? And he quotes Psalm 118. He says, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. What he's saying there is, he's saying, I am this person, the beloved son, the promised Messiah. But Psalm 118, it tells us that the one who is going to be the cornerstone is first of all the rejected stone. So when I went and found these bricks in my backyard, I went looking for the ugliest brick I could find to be Jesus. Are you horrified by that in some sort of way? Like a, that's a, I found the ugliest brick I could find. I found the brick that no one would choose to use because it's got too much rubbish all over it. It's the reject, he is the rejected stone that the builders reject. And yet God says, no, it is the one that they reject who will be my cornerstone. That is the one who the whole building will take its alignment from. You put the cornerstone down first and everything else takes its alignment from that stone. He is the cornerstone, though he be the rejected stone. And then Jesus goes one step further and we wish he didn't go there. And then he says, everyone who falls on this stone will be injured and anyone on whom this stone falls will be crushed. You know what it's like to see a stone crush something? Textbooks. Anyone on whom that stone falls, tragically, awfully, will be crushed. Jesus' alignment is on. I'll tell you why this is horrific. This is horrific, right? Those national leaders who'd so rejected Jesus, they had all this glorious heritage, they had all this position, they had all this ritual, they had everything going for them and Jesus the only question that actually matters is what authority will you give me? How will you respond to me? It doesn't matter about your heritage. It doesn't matter about everything that you have. The question is, how will you respond to me? And you might say, look, I'm a good person. You might say, I sang in a school choir. I went on a church tour of Europe. I've read the Bible. I've got a youth group. I've just done all this good stuff. I'm a good person. And Jesus says to you and to me, he says, but what authority will you give me? If you treat me as disposable, you are deluded and it's a dangerous place to be. So I pray that this year, in the midst of all the other things you're going to learn and think about, that you actually ponder that one question. What authority will you give him?
And I pray that in the end, you might have the humility to accept him who came to preach to you good news. But more on that next week. Okay, thanks very much. I think uh, Steph's going to wrap up for us. Okay, guys.